Chapter One of Tales of the Five Towns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Part One. At Home. Chapter One. His Worship the Goose Driver. It was an amiable but deceitful afternoon in the third week of December. Snow fell heavily in the windows of confectioners' shops, and Father Christmas smiled in Keats Bazaar the fawning smile of a myth who knows himself to be exploded. But beyond these and similar efforts to remedy the forgetfulness of a careless climate, there was no sign anywhere in the five towns, and especially in Bursley, of the immediate approach of the season of peace, goodwill, and gluttony on earth. At the Tiger, next door to Keats in the marketplace, Mr. Josiah Topham Curtenty had put down his glass. The port was kept specially for him, and told his boon companion, Mr. Gordon, that he must be going. These two men had one powerful sentiment in common. They loved the same woman. Mr. Curtenty, aged twenty-six in heart, thirty-six in mind, and forty-six in looks, was fifty-six only in years. He was a rich man. He had made money as an earthenware manufacturer in the good old times before Satan was ingenious enough to invent German competition, American tariffs, and the price of coal. He was still making money with the aid of his son Harry, who now managed the works but he never admitted that he was making it. No one has yet succeeded, and no one ever will succeed in catching an earthenware manufacturer in the act of making money. He may confess with a sigh that he has performed the feat in the past. He may give utterance to a vague, preposterous hope that he will perform it again in the remote future. But as for surprising him in the very act, you would as easily surprise a hen laying an egg. Nowadays, Mr. Curtenty, commercially secure, spent most of his energy in helping to shape and control the high destinies of the town. He was deputy mayor and chairman of the General Purposes Committee of the Town Council. He was also a guardian of the poor, a justice of the peace, president of the Society for the Prosecution of Felons, a sidesman, an odd fellow, and several other things that meant dining shrewdness and good nature. He was a short, stiff, stout, red-faced man, jolly with the jollity that springs from a kind heart, a humorous disposition, a perfect digestion, and the respectful deference of one's bank manager. Without being a member of the Browning Society, he held firmly to the belief that all's right with the world. Mr. Gordon, who has but a sorry part in the drama, was a younger, quieter, less forceful person, rather shy, a municipal mediocrity, perhaps a little inflated that day by reason of his having been elected to the chairmanship of the Gas and Lighting Committee. Both men had sat on their committees at the town hall across the way that deceitful afternoon, and we see them now, after refreshment well earned and consumed, about to separate and sink into private life. But, as they came out into the portico of the tiger, the famous calypso-like barmaid of the tiger, a hovering enchantment in the background, it occurred 
that a flock of geese were meditating, as geese will, in the middle of the road. The gooseherd, a shabby, middle-aged man, looked as though he had recently lost the Battle of Marathon, and was asking himself whether the path of his retreat might not lie through the bar-parlour of the tiger. "'Business pretty good?' Mr. Curtenty inquired of him cheerfully. In the five towns, business takes the place of weather as a topic of salutation. "'Business!' echoed the gooseherd. In that one unassisted noun, scorning the aid of verb, adjective, or adverb, the gooseherd, by a masterpiece of profound and subtle emphasis, contrived to express the fact that he existed in a world of dead illusions, that he had become a convert to Schopenhauer, and that Mr. Curtenty's inappropriate geniality was a final grievance to him. "'There ain't no business,' he added. "'Ah,' returned Mr. Curtenty, thoughtful. Such an assertion of the entire absence of business was a reflection upon the town. Sithee, said the gooseherd in ruthless accents, I drove these here geese into this here town this morning. Here he exaggerated the number of miles traversed. Twelve geese and two gander, a brent and a barnacle. And how many is there now? How many? Fourteen, said Mr. Gordon, having counted, and Mr. Curtenty gazed at him in reproach, for that he, a town councillor, had thus mathematically demonstrated the commercial decadence of Bursley. "'Market overstocked, eh?' Mr. Curtenty suggested, throwing a side glance at Callier the Poulterer's close by, which was crammed with everything that flew, swam, or waddled. "'Call this a market?' said the gooseherd. "'I take my lot over to Hembridge, where there is a bit doing, by all accounts.' Now, Mr. Curtenty had not the least intention of buying those geese, but nothing could be better calculated to straighten the back of a Bursley man than a reference to the mercantile activity of Hanbridge, that Chicago of the five towns. "'How much for the lot?' he inquired. In that moment he reflected upon his reputation. He knew that he was a cure, a card, a character. He knew that everyone would think it just like Jos Curtenty, the renowned deputy mayor of Bursley, to stand on the steps of the tiger and pretend to chaffer with a gooseherd for a flock of geese. His imagination caught the sound of an oft-repeated inquiry. Did you hear about old Jossie's latest trying to buy them their geese? And the appreciative laughter that would follow. The gooseherd faced him in silence. Well, said Mr. Curtenty again, his eyes twinkling, how much for the lot? The gooseherd gloomily and suspiciously named a sum. Mr. Curtenty named a sum startlingly less, ending in sixpence. I'll take it, said the gooseherd, in a tone that closed on the bargain like a vice. The deputy mayor perceived himself the owner of twelve geese and two ganders, one Brent, one Barnacle. It was a shock, but he sustained it. Involuntarily, he looked at Mr. Gordon. "'How are you going to get them home, Curtenty?' asked Gordon, with coarse sarcasm. "'Drive them?' "'Nettled,' Mr. Curtenty retorted. "'Now then, gas, Gordon!' The barmaid laughed aloud at this soubriquet, which that same evening was all over the town, and which has stuck ever since to the chairman of the gas and lighting committee. Mr. Gordon wished, and has never ceased to wish, either that he had been elected to some other committee, or that his name had begun with some other letter. The gooseherd received the purchase money like an affront. 
but when Mr. Curtenty, full of private mirth, said, "'Chuck us your stick in,' he gave him the stick, and smiled under reservation. Jos Curtenty had no use for the geese. He could conceive no purpose which they might be made to serve, no smallest corner for them in his universe. Nevertheless, since he had rashly stumbled into a ditch, he determined to emerge from it grandly, impressively, magnificently. He instantaneously formed a plan by which he would snatch victory out of defeat. He would take Gordon's suggestion and himself drive the geese up to his residence in Hillport, that lofty and aristocratic suburb. It would be an immense and unparalleled farce, a wonder, a topic for years, the crown of his reputation as a card. He announced his intention with that misleading sobriety and ordinariness of tone which it has been the foible of many great humorists to assume. Mr. Gordon lifted his head several times very quickly, as if to say, What next? and then actually departed, which was a clear proof that the man had no imagination and no soul. The goose herd winked. You be rightly called Curdenty, mister, said he, and passed into the tiger. That's the best joke I ever heard, Jos said to himself. I wonder whether he saw it. Then the procession of the geese and the deputy mayor commenced. Now it is not to be assumed that Mr. Curtenty was necessarily bound to look foolish in the driving of geese. He was no nincompoop. On the contrary, he was one of those men who, bringing common sense and presence of mind to every action of their lives, do nothing badly, and always escape the ridiculous. He marshalled his geese with notable gumption, adopted towards them exactly the correct stress of persuasion, and presently he smiled to see them preceding him in the direction of Hillport. He looked neither to right nor left, but simply at his geese, and thus the quidnuncs of the marketplace and the supporters of shop-fronts were unable to catch his eye. He tried to feel like a gooseherd, and such was his histrionic quality, his instinct for the dramatic, he was a gooseherd. Despite his blue Melton overcoat, his hard felt hat with the flattened top, and that opulent curving collar which was the secret despair of the young dandies of Hillport. He had the most natural air in the world. The geese were the victims of this imaginative effort of Mr. Curtenty's. They took him seriously as a gooseherd. These fourteen intelligences, each with an object in life, each bent on self-aggrandisement and the satisfaction of desires, began to follow the line of least resistance in regard to the superior intelligence unseen but felt behind them, feigning, as geese will, that it suited them so to submit, and that in reality they were still quite independent. But in the peculiar eye of the barnacle gander, who was leading, an observer with sufficient fancy might have deciphered a mild revolt against the triumph of the absurd, the accidental and the futile a passive yet Promethean spiritual defiance of the supreme powers. Mr. Curtenty got his fourteen intelligences safely across the top of St. Luke's Square, and gently urged them into the steep defile of Oldcastle Street. By this time rumour had passed in front of him, and run off down side streets like water let into an irrigation system, 
At every corner was a knot of people, at most windows a face. And the deputy mayor never spoke nor smiled. The farce was enormous. The memory of it would survive revolutions and religions. Halfway down Old Castle Street, the first disaster happened. Electric tramways had not then knitted the five towns in a network of steel, but the last word of civilization and refinement was about to be uttered, and a gang of men were making patterns with wires on the skyscape of Old Castle Street. One of the wires, slipping from its temporary gripper, swirled with an extraordinary sound into the roadway and writhed there in spirals. Several of Mr. Curtenty's geese were knocked down and rose obviously annoyed, but the barnacle gander fell with a clinging circle of wire round his muscular glossy neck and did not rise again. It was a violent, mysterious, agonising and sudden death for him, and must have confirmed his theories about the arbitrariness of things. The thirteen passed pitilessly on. Mr. Curtenty freed the gander from the coiling wire and picked it up, but, finding it far too heavy to carry, he handed it to a corporation road-sweeper. "'I'll send for it,' he said. "'Wait here.' These were the only words uttered by him during a memorable journey. The second disaster was that the deceitful afternoon turned to rain, cold, cruel rain, persistent rain, full of sinister significance. Mr. Curtenty ruefully raised the velvet of his Melton. As he did so, a brougham rolled into Old Castle Street, a little in front of him, from the direction of St. Peter's Church, and vanished towards Hillport. He knew the carriage. He had bought it and paid for it. Deep, far down in his mind, stirred the thought, I'm just the least bit glad she didn't see me. He had the suspicion, which recurs even to optimists, that happiness is, after all, a chimera. The third disaster was that the sun set and darkness descended. Mr. Curtenty had, unfortunately, not reckoned with this diurnal phenomenon. He had not thought upon the undesirability of being under compulsion to drive geese by the sole illumination of gas-lamps lighted by corporation gas. After this, disasters multiplied. Dark and the rain had transformed the farce into something else. It was five-thirty when at last he reached the firs, and the garden of the firs was filled with lamentable complainings of a remnant of geese. His man Pond met him with a stable lantern. "'Damp, sir?' said Pond. "'Oh, nought to speak of,' said Mr. Curtenty, and, taking off his hat, he shot the fluid contents of the brim into Pond's face. It was his way of dotting the eye of irony. Mrs. Come in? Yes, sir, I have but just rubbed the horse down. So far, no reference to the surrounding geese, all forlorn in the heavy winter rain. I've gotten a two, three geese and one gander here for Christmas, said Mr. Curtenty, after a pause. To inferiors he always used the dialect. Yes, sir. Turn him into orchard, as you call it. Yes, sir. They aren't all here, thou mun put the horse in the trap and fetch the rest thy sen. Yes, sir. One's dead. A roadman's taking care of it on Old Castle Street. He'll wait for thee. Give him sixpence. Yes, sir. There's another got into th cut. Canal. Yes, sir. 
There's another strayed on the railway line, happen it's run over by this. Yes, sir. And one's making the best of her way to Oldcastle. I couldn't coax her in here. Yes, sir. Collect em. Yes, sir. Mr. Curtenty walked away towards the house. Mister! Pond called after him, flashing the lantern. Well, lad, there's no gander of this lot. Hast forgotten to count the sun? Mr. Curtenty answered blithely from the shelter of the side door. But within himself he was a little crestfallen to think that the surviving gander should have escaped his vigilance, even in the darkness. He had set out to drive the geese home, and he had driven them home, most of them. He had kept his temper, his dignity, his cheerfulness. He had got a bargain in geese, so much was indisputable ground for satisfaction. And yet the feeling of an anticlimax would not be dismissed. Upon the whole his transit lacked glory. It had begun in splendour, but it had ended in discomfort and almost ignominy. Nevertheless, Mr. Curtenty's unconquerable soul asserted itself in a quite genuine and tuneful whistle as he entered the house. The fate of the Brent Gander was never ascertained. The dining-room of the Furs was a spacious and inviting refectory, which owed nothing of its charm to William Morris, Regent Street, or the Arts and Crafts Society. Its triple aim was richness, solidity, and comfort, but especially comfort. And this aim was achieved in new oak furniture of immovable firmness, in a turkey carpet which swallowed up the feet like a feather bed, and in large oil paintings whose darkly glinting frames were a guarantee of their excellence. On a winter's night, as now, the room was at its richest, solidest, most comfortable. The blue plush curtains were drawn on their stout brass rods across door and French window. Finest selected silkstone fizzed and flamed in a patent grate, which had the extraordinary gift of radiating heat into the apartment instead of up the chimney. The shaded wellsback lights of the chandelier cast a dazzling luminance on the tea-table of snow and silver, while leaving the pictures in a gloom so discreet that not Ruskin himself could have decided whether these were by Whistler or Peter Paul Rubens. On either side of the marble mantelpiece were two easy chairs of an immense, incredible capacity, chairs of crimson plush for titans, chairs softer than moss, more pliant than a loving heart, more enveloping than a caress. In one of these chairs, that to the left of the fireplace, Mr. Curtenty was accustomed to snore every Saturday and Sunday afternoon and almost every evening. The other was usually empty, but tonight it was occupied by Mrs. Curtenty, the jewel of the casket. In the presence of her husband, she always used a small rocking chair of ebonized cane. To glance at this short, slight, yet plump little creature as she reclined crosswise in the vast chair, leaving great spaces of the seat unfilled, was to think rapturously to oneself, This is a woman. Her fluffy head was such a dot against the back of the chair. The curve of her chubby ringed hand above the head was so adorable, her black eyes were so provocative, her slippered feet so wee, yes, and there was something so mysteriously thrilling about the fall of her skirt, that you knew instantly her name was Clara, her temper both fiery and obstinate, and her personality distracting. You knew that she was one of those women of frail physique who can endure fatigues that would destroy a camel, one of those demonic women capable of doing without sleep for ten nights in order to nurse you, 
capable of dying and seeing you die rather than give way about the tint of a necktie, capable of laughter and tears simultaneously, capable of never being in the wrong except for the idle whim of so being. She had a big mouth and very wide nostrils, and her years were thirty-five. It was no matter, it would have been no matter, had she been a hundred and thirty-five. In short, Clara Curtenty wore tight-fitting black silk, with a long gold chain that descended from her neck nearly to her waist, and was looped up in the middle to an old-fashioned gold brooch. She was in mourning for a distant relative. Black preeminently suited her. Consequently, her distant relatives died at frequent intervals. The basalt clock on the mantelpiece trembled and burst into the song of six. Clara Curtenty rose swiftly from the easy chair and took her seat in front of the tea-tray. Almost at the same moment a neat black-and-white parlour-maid brought in teapot, copper kettle, and a silver-covered dish containing hot pikelets, then departed. Clara was alone again, not the same Clara now, but a personage demure, prim, precise, frightfully upright of back, a sort of impregnable stronghold without doubt a deputy mayoress. At five past six Josiah Curtenty entered the room, radiant from a hot bath, and happy in dry clothes, a fine, if mature, figure of a man. His presence filled the whole room. "'Well, my chuck,' he said, and kissed her on the cheek. She gazed at him with a look that might mean anything. Did she raise her cheek to his greeting? Or was it fancy that she had endured rather than accepted his kiss? He was scarcely sure, and if she had endured instead of accepting the kiss, was her mood to be attributed to his lateness for tea, or to the fact that she was aware of the episode of the geese? He could not divine. "'Pikelets! Good!' he exclaimed, taking the cover off the dish. This strong, successful and dominant man adored his wife, and went in fear of her. She was his first love, but his second spouse. They had been married ten years. In those ten years they had quarrelled only five times, and she had changed the very colour of his life. Till his second marriage he had boasted that he belonged to the people, and retained the habits of the people. Clara, though she also belonged to the people, very soon altered all that. Clara had a passion for the genteel. Like many warm-hearted, honest, clever, and otherwise sensible persons, Clara was a snob, but a charming little snob. She ordered him to forget that he belonged to the people. She refused to listen when he talked in the dialect. She made him dress with opulence, and even with tidiness. She made him buy a fashionable house, and fill it with fine furniture. She made him buy a brougham, in which her gentility could pay calls and do shopping. She shopped in Oldcastle, where a decrepit aristocracy of tradesmen sneered at Hanbridge's lack of style. She had her day. She taught the servants to enter the reception rooms without knocking. She took tea in bed in the morning, and tea in the afternoon in the drawing-room. She would have instituted dinner at seven, but she was a wise woman, and realised that too much tyranny often means revolution and the crumbling of thrones. Therefore the ancient plebeian custom of high tea at six was allowed to persist and continue. She it was who had compelled Josiah, or bewitched, beguiled, coaxed, and wheedled him, after a public refusal, 
to accept the unusual post of deputy mayor. In two years' time he might count on being mayor. Why, then, should Clara have been so anxious for this secondary dignity? Because, in that year of royal festival, Bursley, in common with many other boroughs, had had a fancy to choose a mayor out of the House of Lords. The Earl of Chell, a magnate of the county, had consented to wear the mayoral chain and dispense the mayoral hospitalities on condition that he was provided with a deputy for daily use. It was the idea of herself being deputy to the lovely, meddlesome and arrogant Countess of Chell that had appealed to Clara. The deputy of a countess at length spoke. "'Will Harry be late at the works again tonight?' she asked in her colder, small-talk manner, which committed her to nothing, as Josiah well knew. Her way of saying that word Harry was inimitably significant. She gave it an air. She liked Harry, and she liked Harry's name, because it had a Kensingtonian sound. Harry, so accomplished in business, was also a dandy, and he was a dog. My stepson, she loved to introduce him, so tall, manly, distinguished, and dandiacal. Harry, enriched by his own mother, belonged to a London club. He ran down to Llandidno for weekends, and it was reported that he had been behind the scenes at the Alhambra. Clara felt for the word Harry the unreasoning affection which most women lavish on George. "'Like as not,' said Josiah. "'I haven't been to the works this afternoon.' Another silence fell, and then Josiah, feeling himself unable to bear any further suspense as to his wife's real mood and temper, suddenly determined to tell her all about the geese, and know the worst. And precisely at the instant that he opened his mouth, the maid opened the door and announced, "'Mr. Duncalf wishes to see you at once, sir. He won't keep you a minute.' "'Ask him in here, Mary,' said the deputy mayor sweetly, "'and bring another cup and saucer.' Mr. Duncalf was the town clerk of Bursley, legal, portly, dry, and a little shy. "'I won't stop, Curtenty. How do you do, Mrs. Curtenty? No, thanks, really.' But she, smiling, exquisitely gracious, flattered and smoothed him into a chair. "'Any interesting news, Mr. Duncalf?' she said, and added, "'But we're glad that anything should have brought you in.' Well, said Duncalf, I've just had a letter by the afternoon post from Lord Chell. Oh, the Earl, indeed, how very interesting. What's he after? inquired Josiah cautiously. He says he's just been appointed Governor of East Australia. Announcement will be in tomorrow's papers, and so he must regretfully resign the mayoralty. Says he'll pay the fine, but of course we shall have to remit that by special resolution of the council. "'Well, I'm damned!' Josiah exclaimed. "'Topham?' Mrs. Curtenty remonstrated, but with a delightful acquitting dimple. She never would call him Josiah, much less Joss. Topham came more easily to her lips, and sometimes Top. "'Your husband,' said Mr. Duncalf impressively to Clara, "'will, of course, have to step into the mayor's shoes, "'and you'll have to fill the place of the countess,' he paused and added, and very well you'll do it, too, very well, nobody better. The town clerk frankly admired Clara. Mr. Duncalf, Mr. Duncalf, she raised a finger at him, you are the most shameless flatterer in the town. The flatterer was flattered. Having delivered the weighty news, he had leisure to savour his own importance as the bearer of it.
He drank a cup of tea. Josiah was thoughtful, but Clara brimmed over with a fascinating loquacity. Then Mr. Duncalf said that he must really be going, and, having arranged with the mayor-elect to call a special meeting of the council at once, he did go, all the while wishing he had the enterprise to stay. Josiah accompanied him to the front door. The sky had now cleared. "'Thank you for calling,' said the host. "'Oh, that's all right. Good night, Curtenty. Got that goose out of the canal?' So the story was all abroad. Josiah returned to the dining-room, imperceptibly smiling. At the door the sight of his wife halted him. The face of that precious and adorable woman flamed out lightning and all menace and offence. Her luring eyes showed what a triumph of dissimulation she must have achieved in the presence of Mr. Duncalf, but now she could speak her mind. "'Yes, Topham,' she exploded, as though finishing an harangue. "'And on this day of all days you choose to drive geese in the public road behind my carriage.' Joss was stupefied, annihilated. "'Did you see me then, Clary?' He vainly tried to carry it off. "'Did I see you? Of course I saw you.' She withered him up with the hot wind of scorn. "'Well,' he said foolishly, "'how was I to know that the Earl would resign just to-day?' "'How were you to—' Harry came in for his tea. He glanced from one to the other, discreet, silent. On the way home he had heard the tale of the geese in seven different forms. The deputy mayor, so soon to be mayor, walked out of the room. "'Pond has just come back, father,' said Harry. "'I drove up the hill with him.' And as Josiah hesitated a moment in the hall, he heard Clara exclaim, "'Oh, Harry!' "'Damn!' he murmured. The signal of the following day contained the announcement which Mr. Duncalf had forecast. It also stated, on authority, that Mr. Josiah Curtenty would wear the mayoral chain of Bursley immediately, and added as its own private opinion that, in default of the right honourable the Earl of Chell and his Countess, no better civic heads could have been found than Mr. Curtenty and his charming wife. So far the tone of the signal was unimpeachable. But under all this was a subtitle, Amusing Exploit of the Mayor-Elect, followed by an amusing description of the procession of the geese, a description which concluded by referring to Mr. Curtenty as His Worship the Goose-Driver. Hanbridge, Knipe, Longshaw and Turnhill laughed heartily, and perhaps a little viciously at this paragraph, but Bursley was annoyed by it. In print the affair did not look at all well. Bursley prided itself on possessing a unique dignity as the mother of the five towns, and to be presided over by a goose-driver, however humorous and hospitable he might be, did not consort with that dignity. A certain mayor of Longshaw, years before, had driven a sow to market, and derived a tremendous advertisement therefrom, but Bursley had no wish to rival Longshaw in any particular. Bursley regarded Longshaw as the inferno of the five towns. In Bursley you were bidden to go to Longshore as you were bidden to go to... Certain acute people in Hillport saw nothing but a paralysing insult in the opinion of the signal, first and foremost a Hanbridge organ, that Bursley could find no better civic head than Josiah Curtenty. At least three aldermen and seven councillors, privately and in the Tiger, 
disagreed with any such view of Bursley's capacity to find heads. And underneath all this brooding dissatisfaction lurked the thought, as the alligator lurks in a muddy river, that the Earl wouldn't like it, meaning the geese episode. It was generally felt that the Earl had been badly treated by Joss Curtenty. The town could not explain its sentiments, could not argue about them. They were not, in fact, capable of logical justification, but they were there, they violently existed. It would have been useless to point out that if the inimitable Joss had not been called to the mayoralty, the episode of the geese would have passed as a gorgeous joke. That everyone had been vastly amused by it, until that desolating issue of the signal announced the Earl's retirement. That Joss Curtenty could not possibly have foreseen what was about to happen, and that, anyhow, goose-driving was less a crime than a social solecism, and less a social solecism than a brilliant eccentricity. Bursley was hurt, and logic is no balm for wounds. Some may ask, if Bursley was offended, why did it not mark its sense of Josiah's failure to read the future by electing another mayor? The answer is that, while all were agreed that his antic was inexcusable, all were equally agreed to pretend that it was a mere trifle of no importance. You cannot deprive a man of his prescriptive right for a mere trifle of no importance. Besides, nobody could be so foolish as to imagine that goose-driving, though reprehensible in a mayor about to succeed an earl, is an act of which official notice can be taken. The most curious thing in the whole imbroglio is that Josiah Curtenty secretly agreed with his wife and the town. He was ashamed, overset. His procession of geese appeared to him in an entirely new light, and he had the strength of mind to admit to himself, I've made a fool of myself. Harry went to London for a week, and Josiah, under plea of his son's absence, spent eight hours a day at the works. The brougham remained in the coach-house. The town council duly met in special conclave, and Josiah Topham Curtenty became mayor of Bursley. Shortly after Christmas it was announced that the mayor and mayoress had decided to give a New Year's treat to four hundred poor old people in the St. Luke's covered market. It was also spread about that this treat would eclipse and extinguish all previous treats of a similar nature, and that it might be accepted as some slight foretaste of the hospitality which the mayor and mayoress would dispense in that memorable year of royal festival. The treat was to occur on January the ninth, the mayoress's birthday. On January the seventh, Josiah happened to go home early. He was proceeding into the drawing-room without enthusiasm to greet his wife, when he heard voices within. And one voice was the voice of Gas Gordon. Joss stood still. It has been mentioned that Gordon and the mayor were in love with the same woman. The mayor had easily captured her under the very guns of his not formidable rival, and he had always thereafter felt a kind of benevolent, good-humoured, contemptuous pity for Gordon. Gordon, whose life was a tragic blank, Gordon, who lived a melancholy and defeated bachelor with his mother and two unmarried sisters older than himself. That Gordon still worshipped at the shrine did not disturb him. On the contrary, it pleased him. Poor Gordon. But really, Mrs. Curtenty, Gordon was saying, really, you know, I... that is, really... To please me, Mrs. Curtenty entreated with a seductive charm that Joss felt even outside the door. Then there was a pause. Very well, said Gordon. 
Mr. Curtenty tiptoed away and back into the street. He walked in the dark nearly to Oldcastle, and returned about six o'clock. But Clara said no word of Gordon's visit. She had scarcely spoken to Topham for three weeks. The next morning, as Harry was departing to the works, Mrs. Curtenty followed the handsome youth into the hall. Harry, she whispered, bring me two ten-pound notes this afternoon, will you, and say nothing to your father. Gas Gordon was to be on the platform at the poor people's treat. As he walked down Trafalgar Road, his eye caught a still-exposed fragment of a decayed bill on a hoarding. It referred to a meeting of the local branch of the Anti-Gambling League a year ago, in the lecture hall of the Wesleyan Chapel. And it said that Councillor Gordon would occupy the chair on that occasion. Mechanically, Councillor Gordon stopped and tore the fragment away from the hoarding. The treat, which took the form of a dinner, was an unqualified success. It surpassed all expectations. Even the diners themselves were satisfied, a rare thing at such affairs. Goose was a prominent item in the menu. After the repast, the replete guests were entertained from the platform, the mayor being, of course, in the chair. Harry sang in Old Madrid, accompanied by his stepmother, with faultless expression. Mr. Duncalf astonished everybody with his famous North Country recitation, The Patent Hair-Brushing Machine. There were also a banjo solo, a skirt dance of discretion, and a campanological turn. At last, towards ten o'clock, Mr. Gordon, who had hitherto done nothing, rose in his place amid good-natured cries of gas. "'I feel sure you will all agree with me,' he began, "'that this evening would not be complete without a vote of thanks, "'a very hearty vote of thanks, to our excellent host and chairman.' Ear-splitting applause. "'I've got a little story to tell you,' he continued, "'a story that, up to this moment, has been a close secret "'between His Worship the Mayor and myself.' His Worship looked up sharply at the speaker. "'You've heard about some geese, I reckon?' laughter. Well, you've not heard all, but I'm going to tell you. I can't keep it to myself any longer. You think his worship drove those geese? I hope they're digesting well, loud laughter, just for fun. He didn't. I was with him when he bought them, and I happened to say that goose-driving was a very difficult accomplishment. Depends on the geese, shouted a voice. Yes, it does, Mr. Gordon admitted. Well, his worship contradicted me, and we had a bit of an argument. I don't bet, as you know, at least not often, but I don't mind confessing that I offered to bet him a sovereign he couldn't drive his geese half a mile. Look here, Gordon, he said to me, there's a lot of distress in the town just now, trade bad and so on and so on. I'll lay you a level ten pounds I drive these geese to Hillport myself, and the loser to give the money to charity. Done, I said. Don't say anything about it, he says. I won't, I says, but I am doing. Applause. I feel it my duty to say something about it. More applause. Well, I lost, as you all know. He drove him to Hillport. Good old Joss. That's not all. The mayor insisted on putting his own ten pounds to mine and making it twenty. Here are the two identical notes, his and mine. Mr. Gordon waved the identical notes amid an uproar. We've decided that everyone who has dined here tonight shall receive a brand new shilling. I see Mr. Septimus Lovett from the bank there with a bag. He will attend to you as you go out. Wild outbreak and tumult of rapturous applause. 
And now three cheers for your mayor and mayoress. It was colossal, the enthusiasm. And for Gas Gordon, called several voices. The cheers rose again in surging waves. Everyone remarked that the mayor, usually so imperturbable, was quite overcome, seemed as if he didn't know where to look. Afterwards, as the occupants of the platform descended, Mr. Gordon glanced into the eyes of Mrs. Curtenty, and found there his exceeding reward. The mediocrity had blossomed out that evening into something new and strange. Liar, deliberate liar, and self-accused gambler as he was, he felt that he had lived during that speech. He felt that it was the supreme moment of his life. "'What a perfectly wonderful man your husband is,' said Mrs. Duncalf to Mrs. Curtenty. Clara turned to her husband with a sublime gesture of satisfaction. In the brougham, going home, she bewitched him with wifely endearments. She could afford to do so. The stigma of the geese episode was erased. But the barmaid of the tiger, as she let down her bright hair that night in the attic of the tiger, said to herself, Well, of all the... Just that. End of chapter one.